tiny in all that air. The Philip Larkin Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to Tiny and All That Air, the Philip Larkin Society podcast. My name is Lynn Lockwood and I'm the Deputy Chair of the PLS. This episode features a writer who would be familiar not only to whole residents, but also to keen telewatchers, radio listeners and theatre goers across the country. Alan Plato was born in Jarrow in 1935, but having moved to Hull when he was just three years old, the city was pleased to adopt him and he lived there for much of his life. His most famous writing credit, I should think, is Zed Cars, and anyone over the age of 50 could confidently sing the theme tune to that, even if they could remember nothing else about it. Alan Plater was also a huge fan of jazz music, and his ITV comedy drama The Biderbeck Affair, starring James Bolam and Barbara Flynn in the mid-1980s, was a massive success. I remember this wonderful series for a number of reasons. It was the first time I'd seen a TV drama where secondary school teachers were the main characters. They had love lives and actual homes, went shopping and had adventures and a sense of humour. What a revelation to a 15-year-old Hertfordshire schoolgirl. I also loved the jazz music soundtrack. So the Biderbeck trilogy, along with The Singing Detective, The Blues Brothers and The Jungle Book, were my entry level to Louis Prima, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Ella Fitzgerald and more. Maybe not as romantic as Philip Larkin collecting American vinyl imports in 1940s Oxford, but we all have to start somewhere. After I'd listened to this talk, I read Sweet Sorrow, which is Alan Plater's play about Philip Larkin, written in 1990 as his tribute to Larkin after his death. I'm lucky enough to have Anthony Thwaites' copy that was dedicated to Anthony by Alan. Anthony, the meticulous archiver, had took two little reviews clipped from the Los Angeles Times and the British Times newspapers into its pages. If you haven't seen or read this play, then I urge you to. It's a lovely, funny and moving tribute. Alan Plater was enormously generous with his time and made a huge contribution to the whole art scene of the 1960s and 70s, developing a gentle friendship with Philip Larkin along the way. This speech was recorded on the 28th of November 1998 and was given at that year's PLS AGM. Entitled, By the Tide of Humber, I Fell Among Poets, Alan reflects on those days with dry humour and huge affection. Thank you very much. Uh after such a generous introduction, I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. Um, the, I'm breaking the rule of a lifetime, actually. The, the last time that I actually read a lecture was about, I don't know, 30 years ago. It was in Nottingham at the Nottingham Arts Festival at a time when all the cities in the land had arts festivals. And I, I had to give a talk at Nottingham, and I thought, this is quite important. They're paying me uh, a fee and we were sponsored by Guinness, uh, but the fee was in cash, as I recall. And so I wrote it all out. And a great friend of mine, a much missed uh, playwright, Henry Livings, who was in the audience, said, that was very good, Alan. I said, thank you, Henry. He said, now take those notes away and burn them. And I said, why? He said, because you'll end up believing it. 
So I've, this is written out, but I do actually believe it. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't be reading it. And it's based very loosely on a piece I wrote in 1991 for Bet Noir, splendid publication of this parish. There are some new thoughts in it, not too many, because on average I only manage one new thought every couple of years or so. And when I say new thoughts, I only mean new to me. <laughs> uh, I, they generally turn out to be thoughts that other people have been thinking for a couple of thousand years. And I think that is the nature of progress in the human species. There isn't really anything new in the conceptual area, and if there is, I'm not likely to stumble across it. The technolo technological revolution that has given us the internet and digital television simply makes it easier for us to share our ignorance. If I sound like an old Luddite, I'm sure it's in the spirit of our founder. <laughs> I'm going to talk about poets and poetry, but let me start with an anecdote. I make extensive use of anecdotes. My considered view being that anecdotal evidence is the only sort that's worth believing. In 1983, I researched and wrote a BBC film about George Orwell, specifically about the period 1946 to 48. He spent on the island of Jura, off the west coast of Scotland, where he wrote 1984. One of the people we talked to was Margaret Nelson, who had been on the island throughout that period. Consequently, when the real 1984 turned up, Margaret was besieged by academics, journalists, and media folk from all over the global village, all wanting to know about the great man. We were relatively late upon the scene, and she said a couple of things that amused and intrigued me. First, she said, if I'd known it was all going to be of historical importance, I'd have taken more notice of it at the time. <laughs> uh, I mean, from, she said, this was just this very tall man who lived up the road and uh, was writing a book. Second thing she said, I've answered so many questions, I don't know whether the answers come from what I remember or whether I read about them in Bernard Crick's book. So what follows is a series of reminiscences about the poetry scene in Hull, as I remember it during the 60s and 70s. That does not necessarily mean that the events reported actually happened. Memory becomes history, history becomes mythology, and it can happen very quickly. Overnight it can happen if the wine and ideas have been flowing. In retrospect, there might have been a renaissance going on, but viewed from within, it often seemed like just another Thursday. There were exceptions, and this is an attempt to place a few of them on the record. The past to recycle a thought is another country. By the same token, I've always regarded poets as other people. After over 30 years of writing dramatic fiction, I feel reasonably comfortable sitting at table with any assembly of dramatists and screenwriters. I have even learned to live with the voice that murmurs as I start a new play, Shakespeare wrote plays too. But consorting with poets, I twitch. I know what I like, but I'm never sure if I'm supposed to like it. I left adolescence and arrived at what everyone assures me is adulthood with a golden treasury ragbag in my head, the O and A level poets of whom Matthew Arnold is the only one I can place with any certainty. Plus a few I discovered on my own account in libraries and elsewhere on a voluntary basis. Don Marquis, John Donne, E.E. E. Cummings, Henry Reid, Ogden Nash and Dylan Thomas. 
The first time I ever tuned in by choice to the third program, it was one night when my parents had gone out, actually, which made it a lot safer. And it was to listen in. Uh, we don't use that phrase anymore. But we, our 95-year-old aunt who lives with us, we, we were listening to something, uh, actually listening to me on, on jazz notes a few weeks ago. And, and Auntie Lil said, tonight we're going to listen in. And it was so lovely to hear that phrase again. So my parents went out and I was going to listen into radio to the third program. And what I was going to listen into was Dylan Thomas. Reason was I was 15, 16 years old and I'd read in the papers that this man was a drunk and a womanizer. And I calculated he might have some useful things to teach me. <laughs> well, he did, but it was nothing to do with drink and women and everything to do with words. Age 16, I was intoxicated by those words and that voice. Many years later, I quoted Do Not Go Gentle in a television play, as did my good friend Alan Bleasdale a decade, a decade or so later. And it was deeply moving to discover it had been read at Ted Hughes' funeral. You might call it the kinship of language. As a student, I wrote and owned up to a few pieces of sub-Ogden Nashery. I also bought a slim volume of Verlaine in the French from a second-hand bookstall in Newcastle's covered market, hoping somebody would see me. <laughs> Nobody did. I wrote, kept secret, and swiftly burned some strictly private fragments, unrequited love poems, school of E.J. Thrib, with a lot of references to Life's Highway. If any of the love objects had read them, Life's Highway would have been out of the question we wouldn't have made it to the bus stop. I also wrote a few parodies, mostly of eminent dramatists of the 50s, among them Tennessee Williams and Samuel Beckett, although I, I don't think they ever found out. The Beckett piece was called Waiting for Gladys, <laughs> and it made extensive use of the word nothingness. I'm not sure that Beckett actually uses nothingness very much, but I did in the parody. And for that reason, and to this day, I can't take any poem seriously if it uses the word nothingness. Very sorry about this, but it's true. I mean, what's wrong with nothing? After all, we don't talk about somethingness or anythingness. Meanwhile, here in the city of Hull, there's no nothingness here but lots of somethingness. It's an alarming thought how many of us lived in the Avenues area at various times during the 60s and 70s. The playwrights, Antony Mingella, Jim Hawkins, Harry Duffin, and Neville Smith. The poets, Philip Larkin, Douglas Dunn, George Kendrick, Frank Redpath. Bloomsbury became a major industry on this sort of basis and continues to do so. If we throw in Winifred Holtby and Dorothy Sayers, you're well into her heritage trail. A modest detour and a small white lie will give you Stevie Smith. A couple of big lies, you can have Andrew Marvel and Daniel Defoe. These are quite formidable lies, but when did lies ever get in the way of a good marketing concept? I'll leave the rest of the keen-eyed kiddies with their mobile phones. Seated one evening at the Hull Daily Mail, reading of the latest interwoven triumphs and disasters at Boothbury Park, some things are universal and enduring, I turned to an inside page where there was an item about a bricklayer called Norman Jackson who had published some poems. I still have a copy of A Horse in a Book of Chinese Art by Norman, undated, so I, I can't be sure whether this was the collection the, the whole mail was excited about. 
But memory says we were in the 60s and there was a photograph of Norman posing with a trowel and a brick. Something flitted across my mind along the lines of, oh look, a bricky who writes poetry. And then I got on with the rest of my life. A few days later, Norman turned up on the doorstep. He'd calculated correctly that it, it would be nice to say hello. So we said hello, talked of the work of letters, the world of letters, possibly even talked of Michelangelo, I can't remember. Turned out he was an early example of dropping out, having opted for the building site in preference to the art school. Whether this was before or after I met George Kendrick, I can't remember. Both events must have been on the early side of the mid-60s. That's accurate enough for mythology. Either way, I had fallen among poets, and it had immediate consequences. My first ever play was produced on radio in 1961 by the late Alfred Bradley, who was the BBC's drama producer in Leeds. Parenthetically, I'm doing a programme about Alfred on Radio 4 a week today, 8 o'clock next Saturday, uh, an archive programme about Alfred's productions, which I'm presenting. It's a little commercial. There's no money in it for anybody. It's Radio 4, you know. <laughs> um, but this, uh, my relationship with Alfred began in 1961. Alfred had a tragic flaw. He encouraged people. The result was he received a dozen plays by every post, some of them pure dross, but he insisted on reading them. He was unique and irreplaceable. He is what the BBC should be today and is not. Two or three, three plays and two, two or three years on, I said to him, by an easy process of elimination in the Fenton, the pub across the road from Broadcasting House in Leeds, I said, Alfred, I've met these poets. The conversation continued. What poet, said Alfred? Well, there's one called Norman Jackson. He works on a building site, and there's another one called George. Well, what do you want me to do about it, said Alfred. I was wondering about some sort of radio program, like a little magazine, but on the radio, poems and prose and songs, stuff like that. Fine, said Alfred. Will you edit it? Pardon? And that was roughly the conversation. I edited The Northern Drift from 1965 to 1968. It was transmitted live once a month, lunchtime Sunday, in the old North region. For the first program, we invited contributions from writers we knew, including Jim Andrew from Oldham and Norman Smithson from just up the road in Leeds. Norman Jackson read a couple of poems. I wrote a piece of social realist sub-Ogden Nashery about Hull called The Occasional Smell of Fish. It began a fish shop 50 miles down a railway siding this witty bloke's definition of the third port. But there's two ends to every line, including the railway sort. So have a look down this end and watch that occasional smell of fish. And there's a bit more in the middle, which I can't remember. And it ended, mind you, about this smell of fish, it's true to say that most places have one smell or another, and a lot of people get choked by new mown hay. So that was my first ever public poem which I was paid a very modest sum of money and poetic justice, you might say. The quotations are from memory because I've erased the slab in the middle and I couldn't find a copy of it. After that first program, The Deluge, we gave their first paid work as writers to Barry Hines and Carla Lane, among many others. 
Hull-based poets Peter Fenton and Vera Wise were among the early contributors. Henry Livings and Alex Glasgow became our star performers and eventually took the show on the road, still with the commitment to new writing. They moved on to the festival circuit, ending up in Australia. Alex fell in love with Fremantle and emigrated with his family in 1982. It's a tantalizing thought that had Norman Jackson not turned up on our doorstep, Alex might still be living in Gateshead. There's something to do with the chaos theory there, I think. During the 60s and 70s, the notion of poetry as performance art gained strength. Adrian Mitchell packed them in at the Blue Bell, and we'd read about Ginsberg and Yevtushenko filling the Albert Hall and football stadiums, respectively. The neighborhood response, naturally enough, was, let's have a whack at this. It was a careful whack. We didn't book Boothbury Park or the Boulevard. Licensed premises were the designated holy ground, the Blue Bell, the Bull, and the Hayworth Arms. As an additional insurance policy, the normal pattern was to have the poetry with something else. The conventional billing was an evening of poetry with jazz, or poetry with blues, poetry with folk, poetry with flamenco. It was a bit like the Bridlington Seaside Cafe principle. If you don't like the sausages, just eat the chips. <laughs> I got trawled into this circuit early on, probably because my name was in the Radio Times on a regular basis, and anyone who wrote for Z Cars was an obvious choice to take part in public readings. That's another false analogy, but... That never stops anybody, does it? I was never sure whether I was supposed to be part of the poetry bit or the other bit. I never was sure whether I was the sausage or the chips. It was one of the trickier creative dilemmas of our time. But to be sure, the chips were a lot of fun. They included Carol Mills, who played guitar and sang the blues and very rude songs. Robin Kay, a flamenco guitarist who inevitably lived in the avenues and seemed to spend more time tuning the instrument than playing it, uh, but a lovely player once he'd got started. Max Boylet, a jazz pianist in the Earl Hines tradition. Ian Clark and Chris Rowe, who ended up deservedly as regional celebrities with a recording contract. And the totally extraordinary Sid and Norm. Uh, I must tell you a little bit about Sid and Norm. Norman Beadle, who also wrote jokes for Ken Dodd, and the late Sid Clark were artists without category. They played tiny ukuleles and penny whistles, which they bought on stage in a brown paper carrier bag. And they sang their own original songs, quietly and gently. They were the only people who ever performed at the Stevedores and Dockers Club without using the microphone and made the audience listen. My favorite song from their repertoire was an East Riding country and western number beginning, beginning take me back where I belong to dear old wet wang. <laughs> One of their proudest moments was the week they had two bookings, a jumble sale in Little Wheaton and the Liberal Studies Group at Hull Prison. <laughs> Scholars who would like to know more will find dear old, wet wang, dear old Wet Wang on surviving copies of the Humberbridge Celebration EP. A little zeal might also unearth By the Tide of Humber, an anthology compiled by Chris Rowe and Ian Clark in 1971 which contains poems by Howard Clark, Vera Wise, Norman Jackson, Christopher Gillett, and Brian Higgins. I have to confess, I sat a little uneasily in the midst of all this performance activity, a playwright marooned between the poets and the musicians. 
I had various odds and ends left over from student days, like the Beckett parody. But eventually I stiffened the sinews and wrote a poem, cloaked as usual in self-parody by way of protection. But this was my first performance poem, and it's called, On Saturday, January the 4th, I Had Mild Constipation. should have been on Sunday, January the 4th. I beg your pardon, because it moved... On Sunday, January the 4th. On Sunday, January the 4th, I had mild constipation, about which I am writing to the British Medical Association. On Saturday, January the 3rd, the day before, I'd watched Hull City playing football, then went to a family party where we ate sausages on sticks and mince pies, and I drank a quantity of scotch, modest to the point of condensation. And we all played moderately intelligent games. At 10 o'clock, and this clinical accuracy is important, we watched Match of the Day on television. And later on, towards midnight, somebody brought out the cards for a game of Newmarket, which we played viciously, like any loving family. And so, to Sunday, January the 4th, when I started my letter to the British Medical Association, telling them that playing Newmarket causes mild constipation, but I didn't post the letter. Common sense told me it was watching too much football. One Day in Spring Street was the title of a Z Cars episode I wrote, sometime in the period 1963 to 65. It was entirely without local significance. It just seemed a nice title. I had no idea that in 1970 I would be involved and deeply in the opening of the Hull Arts Centre now Holtruck Theatre in Spring Street. Like poetry readings, the Beatles, Joe Orton, yes, and Zed Cars too, art centres were part of the spirit of the times, or the zeitgeist, as I've learned to call it. Our aim was to have an art centre on every street corner, an ambition shared by Jenny Lee, Minister for the Arts. Harold Wilson's administration has had an assortment of retrospective garbage piled upon it by political historians, but he got two things right, the Open University and Jenny Lee, and that's two more than most prime ministers manage. We didn't have to apologize for wanting to make art, and sure as hell, we didn't have to justify it in market terms. We still had to pay the bills, but that's another matter. The history of Spring Street falls into two chapters. Chapter one ran from roughly 1965 to 1970, and it was called Fundraising and Publicity persuading the citizens and burghers that an arts centre was a good idea and please would they put a cheque in the post. There was a poetic element in this. It occurred to the committee that we could raise our profile and some money simultaneously by having a poetry competition, a nominal entry, probably something like half a crown a poem, would raise a useful sum of money. A footnote for the young, eight half crowns equaled one pound. The bonus was we would seem to be doing good works, that is, filling the world with poems. Philip agreed warily but kindly to, to make the final selection from a short list of 12 or so. George Kendrick agreed rashly and recklessly to do the preliminary sorting. It was not the smartest decision of George Kendrick's career. The poetry grapevine has many tendrils and they get everywhere. Soon George had his own postman and his own mailbag twice a day, even on occasions his own mail van, or so the story goes. The ultimate disgrace 30 years later is that I can't remember who won the competition, 
but I'm pretty sure it raised about 250 quid. The same, incidentally, as the initial grant from the Hull City Council when we opened in 1970. John Townend's Tories had a majority at the time, and we asked for £5,000 to match what the Arts Council was giving us. The civic response was that they were strapped for cash, but would we accept the 250 quid as a token of goodwill? Well, we were a well-brought-up committee, so we said thank you and handed the cheque on to the nearest creditor. Now's the time to place on record that it was parsimonious and unhelpful and a major contribution to the financial problems that crippled the Arts Centre in its early days and uh, have continued to do so off and on to the various people who inhabited the premises. It was far from a goodwill gesture. It was actually a slap in the face for people like George Kendrick and, as it turned out, a dummy run for the arts policies of Thatcher's Brill Cream Boys in the ghastly 1980s. There. Feel better for that. <laughs> though we were very busy with our committee meetings and fundraising capers, some of which lost a lot of money, though they were terrific fun. The event which dominated the life of Hull during the late 60s had nothing to do with art, and it was the loss of three trawlers, the Ross Cleveland, the Kingston Peridot, and the St. Romanus, in the space of 10 days during the winter of 1967. 59 trawlermen died. There was one survivor, a man called Harry Edom. There was an appeal fund and a huge community response. The city was seen at its very best. People can handle adversity. The poets organized a reading and I was asked to take part. It was time to put away childish things, time to attempt a decent grown-up poem and I wrote a poem called Names. Now you need to understand that the fishing community by a centuries old tradition lived on Hesel Road and there are three parallel side streets off Hesel Road called, with wonderful irony, Eaton Street, Harrow Street and Rugby Street. <laughs> and Ken Wagstaff was and remains a great footballing hero, a goal scorer of great renown. So this is the poem I wrote for the benefit for the, the families of the trawlermen. Names, street names, Eton, Harrow, Rugby, homage to distant headmasters, not that they realize it. Other names, Ross, name of a group more powerful than the Beatles, Cleveland, echo of distant hills and petrol to drive the lorries. Ross Cleveland, name of a boat. In the street, Eton, Harrow or Rugby, take your pick, a lad plays football. Three goals in your in against gable end goalposts, belting them past his scrub kneed mate, stopping to let the lorries go by, then his wagstaff again. His real name's Mick. Kingston's the name, regal half of a fine city, capital of Humberside. Peridot, origin unknown, says Oxford, meaning a kind of chrysolite, jeweller's name for olivine. Kingston Peridot, name of a boat. In the football street, Eton, Harrow or Rugby, whichever it was, rain stops play, slanting down between the fish house chimneys that fence off the street against the sun. Tea time anyway. Ta-ra, Mick. See you, kid. Running up the terrace, Amethyst Terrace, jeweller's name again, origin unknown. Romanus is an invented name of known origin. Rome, Imperial Majesty, Colosseum, public sacrifices. St. Romanus, name of a boat. Into the two-up, two-down dressing room trots Wagstaff. His real name's Mick. Tea not ready. Evening paper on the table. Headline. 
transistor radio playing. And now, over to the newsroom. And tea not ready. What's up, ma'am? Names, Eaton, Harrow, Rugby. Take your pick. What's up, ma'am? Names, St. Romanus, Kingston, Peridot, Ross, Cleveland, whichever it was. Ma'am, what's up? It's my only grown-up poem. One day, somebody may write the official history of the Hull Arts Centre, which begat Humberside Theatre, which begat String Spring Street Theatre, which begat Hull Truck Theatre. A safe prediction, under no circumstances will it be me. Any account I give will be partial and anecdotal, heavy with prejudice, old regrets, misplaced pride, and downright lies. The official records of the period are likely to be a shambles, sufficient to make Michael Holroyd tremble. George Bernard Shaw would be a pushover by comparison. The facts of the case, according to my perception, are these. We spent five years raising the money to open the place. We didn't raise enough money, but we opened just the same. We were never, in marketing jargon, up and running. At best, we were up and limping. For a while, we were on first-name terms with the bailiff. Good morning, Gilbert, we'd say. What are you taking away today? And minutes later, Gilbert would walk out with a typewriter or the central heating system. Happy days. Anyway, the heart of the matter was drama in the beginning. Poetry crept in around the edges, very like life, you might say. But when it did, it took us by surprise. We had lots of ideas, and that's always dangerous. Let's book Roger McGough, we cried one day, and I was delegated to make the phone call. At the time, I'd read that John Ford, the great film director, would announce himself with the words, my name's John Ford, I make westerns. So I rang Roger. Hello, my name's Alan Plater, I write plays. Hello, my name's Roger McGough, I write poems. And that was the first conversation we had. Roger was happy to do the gig, but we were nervous about poetry, still. So we decided to bill it as an evening of rude songs and verses. Carol Mills and I did the first half of the show. I wrote a rude poem about erogenous zones, and Carol sang some rude songs and low-down blues. Roger did the second half and was, as always, brilliant. The show sold out weeks in advance. The crucial discovery was that People had bought their tickets to hear Roger McGough, and they couldn't care less about my stanza, stanzas or any of the sugaring we had thought necessary to sell the occasion. We were early examples of people obsessed with marketing and packaging, way before those words had been transformed into the witchcraft that laid waste to the 80s and bankrupted the nation as an encore. We also had a short-lived craze for trivial competitions, in 1973, I wrote a play called Swallows on the Water for the theatre, and it contained the line, we've had him looked at, but he hasn't been seen to. <laughs> Which I stole, somebody, oh, we could have the competition again now. For, I stole from the great comedian Jimmy James. We ran a competition in the theatre programme. Quote, in tonight's play, there is a line stolen from a great music hall comedian. Two free tickets for our next production, to the first person identifying the line and the comedian. And we braced ourselves for the deluge, but uh, there was only one entry from a man called Frank Redpath. And he was right, of course. We met, had the occasional drink in the bar, and I discovered he too wrote poetry. I should have guessed. It's the job of poets and playwrights to celebrate heroes like Jimmy James. No good leaving that to the marketing consultants. Poets drifted in and out of Spring Street, and praise be, they still do. 
Wendy Cope and UA Fanthorpe packed the place out only a couple of weeks ago. And this tradition began in the 70s with the Arts Council package tours with readings by Ken Smith, George Macbeth, Brian Patton, Fleur Adcock and many others. Norman Jackson did a stint as press officer. Douglas Dunn ran workshops in what I suppose must have been the Terry Street days. Jeff Nuttall, great alternative poet performer. Jeff Nuttall had a pee in a bucket on stage during an, ev an evening of some alternative damn thing or other. I can't remember the details. And causes a, a lot of aggro with the funding bodies. There were irate letters in the whole Daily Mail. We loved irate letters in the whole Daily Mail. They sold tickets far better than our trivial competitions and half-baked marketing concepts. All this was in the context of exciting and erratic drama seasons, financial crises, music ranging from Ronnie Scott to Susie Quattro, financial crises, kids' workshops where they could learn pottery, kite-making or magic, or all three, not forgetting the financial crises. The poetry clung to the institution like a toffee paper to a shoe, except we weren't always sure whether the sticky stuff was toffee. One of the gangs that found occasional unreliable shelter under the Spring Street umbrella was the original Hull Truck Theatre Company, as founded by the great Mike Bradwell, who now runs the Bush Theatre in London. Mike and I became mates after I'd ignored one of his begging letters. In 1976, we worked together on a stage version of Bill Tidy's comic strip, The Fosdyke Saga, for the Bush Theatre. Uh, for the benefit of those who don't know Bill's work, the Fosdykes, headed by Josiah Fosdyke, are a family who found a tripe manufacturing dynasty in the early years of the century. Precursors of Murdoch, you might say. This provoked my first and so far my only sonnet, and it's recited by Becky Fosdyke, wife of Josiah. The plot is largely irrelevant, and Becky tells the story in her own words. Today being Tuesday or Wednesday, I composed my usual sonnet, and it and decided it should celebrate my feelings about Manchester, our new home. Sonnet by Rebecca Fosdyke, aged 46 or 47. Sonnet about Manchester. Leeds hath not anything to show more fair. <laughs> Thick as short planks be he who would pass by a cloud so noxious in intensity. Manchester now doth like a string vest wear the dankness of the morning. Surly folk, pubs, pawn shops, doggy dirt and knackers yards, and drunken Irish navvies playing cards, all dull and spluttering in the acrid smoke. Never did muck more masochistic crown in choking splendour never to wash off. Never saw I a town so dirty brown, canal so sluggish like a smoker's cough. Dear God, the very houses seem to frown, and all that mighty heart says bugger off. <laughs> I sent a copy of the Fosdyke saga to Philip Larkin, calculating correctly that it might amuse him. By return of post, he sent me a copy of High Windows, inscribed to Alan Plater, Sonneteer Extraordinary, These Local Verses, Philip Larkin. High Window, These Local Verses. We also had a big, big debate. Uh, Shirley read the, the, the notes before we, uh, before we set off and about how many T's in Sonneteer. I mean, Philip spelt it with two, 
in, in, in this inscription, we, and we don't know the answer to this, but, and it's not very important, but it's a bit important. Philip and I first met in the 1960s at a, a cheese and wine party somewhere on this campus, and hand on heart, I can't remember why either of us was, was, was there. But there was a record player, probably a dancette. Who remembers dancettes? And someone had put on some middle-of-the-road, inoffensive party music, School of Mantovani. It was a road that nobody, middle-of-the-road music, but it was a road that nobody with sensitive ears would dream of traveling along. So I found an LP by a jazz piano player called Jess Stacy, <coughs> and substituted it for the Muzak. Philip loomed across the room towards me, moving through the cheese-nibbling, white wine-sipping crowd, as if on casters. Did you do that, he said. Yes, good, he said. And that was the basis of our friendship. Subsequently, we served together on a committee, and he tended to go to sleep at the meetings. As he explained, I can't hear what anyone is saying, so there's very little point in staying awake. We also spent a day in Spring Street with Charles Osborne, interviewing candidates for a poetry fellowship at one of the whole colleges, which we gave to A.E. Brackett's Archie Markham. I can't be precise about the date, but clearly it was a period when centres of higher education could afford a poet, albeit with Arts Council assistance. These days, most of them can't afford pencils. Philip has a special place in my memory and in my archive because in 1990 I wrote a play about him, a play called Sweet Sorrow, which we've talked about earlier. Uh, this was for Holtrock in its later John Godbuffet's. The form of the piece is a celebration party held by four Larkin fans on the anniversary of the Westminster Memorial Service of February the 14th, 1986. With what seemed to me like characteristic perversity, Philip turns up posthumously at his own party, then leaves before the end when the proceedings grow too painful for him. He leaves behind him a courteous, apologetic note, and this is the verse I wrote for this is my piece of Larkin writing, and it's uh, after he's fled the party. Dear friends, my thanks for bread and wine, for West End blues and every line you quoted so acutely, and for knowing who was in the band. And if I punctured odd balloons, at least I didn't steal the spoons. Forgive these rushed ramshackle verses. My muse departed long ago, left no address the sod, but so it goes. Now to the wind I leave you all, but tree, please try to believe. The only truth left on my stall as Cinderella leaves the ball. Gate crashes crash, both day and night, but having crashed, move on. They're right. It doesn't do to overstay. Welcome. Go before the day breaks, sears your ears with early birds. But what survives of us is words. The question that lurks around the whole of this talk is, where did all these poets come from? Why Hull? Why not Bradford or Newcastle or Manchester? Liverpool, for the purpose of this and all the other arguments, is another country, a, a lost province of Ireland with a small Welsh ghetto. There are poets in these other towns and cities, but not in such profusion. And it's difficult to imagine Bloodaxe publishing a rumoured city based on Coventry or Plymouth. When in doubt, make a list. At the very least, it's an enjoyable form of procrastination like picking a team of world cricketers to play the Venus All-Stars. So I made an alphabetical list of poets I have known, either personally or through their work, under the general heading, The Hull Connection, and, and this is it. Patricia Ablett, 
Howard Clark, Pete Didsbury, Douglas Dunn, Peter Fenton, Tony Flynn, Christopher Gillett, Ian Gregson, Tony Griffin, Brian Higgins, Douglas Houston, Norman Jackson, Margot Juby, Philip Larkin, Hubert Nicholson, Sean O'Brien, Tony Petch, Jenny Ratz, Frank Redpath, Len Sefton, Robin Skelton, Ken Smith, Vera Wise, and I've forgotten Morris Rutherford. Sorry, Morris. What drew these people to the city if, as in many cases, they were incomers? What made them stay if they stayed, and what made them go if they went? Why did they write poetry instead of, uh, instead of, or as well as watching City, or going dog racing, or getting drunk, or standing for the council? Was it something in the water, or something in their water? Well, maybe it's related to the city's isolation, where it turns its back on the rest of the country to gaze broodily and moodily at the North Sea. Certainly, it's a good place for standing and staring. Introspection is a good way to fill the long winter evenings when, when the gales delivered direct from the Arctic Circle via Scandinavia hammer on the window. Talking to yourself is the first step to writing poetry, a conducted tour of the inside of your head. And this, I suspect, is what differentiates poets from playwrights. There is an enormous ragbag of received opinion on this subject, but the poet offers us a self-portrait. Under Milkwood is famous for many reasons, but partly because all the characters speak with the same voice, the voice of the poet. The playwright, by comparison, offers an emotional landscape within, the, within which the writer, if he or she is doing the job properly, is invisible. Peter Brook argues that Shakespeare's greatness lies in the fact that we don't know what his point of view is. Shakespeare is invisible but transcendent, like God. Now, as a playwright, I find this point of view very beguiling. On the other hand, if I look at my own work or that of any of my contemporaries, I can generally tell where the playwright's sympathies lies. Conclusion, I suppose it has to be that none of us are as good as Shakespeare. And maybe it doesn't really matter too much. In school, I was always taught that an essay should have a conclusion. Falstaff, therefore, is Shakespeare's finest comic creation because, and then you, give, you hit the teacher with the conclusion. Well, as Philip might have said, conclusions are a load of crap. If we knew the reason why, we wouldn't need poems and plays in the first place. My own personal conclusion involves a quotation from another hero, the great comedian Max Wall who said in an, interview, in an interview, I don't think I ever fell in love. I walked around the edges, but I was very careful not to fall in. So these are the rambling reminiscences of a playwright who walked around the edges of poetry without ever falling in. But I very much enjoyed the walk, and I thank you for listening to me. Thank you so much to Alexandra Kahn, who is the agent for the Alan Plater Literary Estate Limited, for giving us the initial approval to use this recording, and to Steve Plater and John Rubinstein, who are the joint directors of the Literary Estate. The PLS personnel has changed a great deal since Alan Plater's days, as you can imagine, but we still have a personal link to Alan through our membership secretary, Carol Collinson, who told me she was at the inaugural event for the launch of the Society of which Alan Plater was the speaker. Carol remembers Alan writing Sweet Sorrow, which was put on at the original Whole Truck. She added in her email to me, I knew him slightly as our sons were in the same scout troop and we stood together on the sidelines at scout football matches. 
He was always pleasant, chatty and quietly unassuming. Thanks, Carol, for that. It's so lovely to have a personal memory. If you're interested in seeing an Alan Plater play this summer, then the Stephen Joseph Theatre in Scarborough is putting on a production of The Blonde Bombshells of 1943, which is full of swing and jazz and looks like it will be excellent. As a former ice cream seller and ticket collector at the Stephen Joseph, I'd definitely recommend it. It's on from the 2nd to the 26th of August. And if you'd like to attend this year's Philip Larkin Society AGM, then it will be held in Beverley on the 10th of June. All the details are on the website and with members. We have a talk by retired librarian Jeff Weston, who worked alongside Larkin at the Brimwell Jones Library for 16 years. He is now an expert bibliographer on Larkin Publications. This podcast was produced by me, Lynn Lockwood and Gavin Hogg, and the music was The Horns of the Morning by The Mechanicals Band. If you have any questions, comments or ideas for future topics, then please, as ever, do get in touch. of the morning are blowing are shining the meadow is wet with the coldest of dew the dawn reassembles